1914, the bloated empires of Europe descended into what would become the most deadly and destructive war the world had ever known. The United States wouldn't enter the conflict until its twilight in 1917. And even though the government had three years to prepare, they were still faced with a shortage of manpower. And so on May 18, 1917, the Woodrow Wilson administration passed the Selective Service Act, which established the draft. In order to bring more soldiers into the armed forces, the draft required all able-bodied men between 21 and 30, regardless of race, to register for selection. Now, previously, access to military service was not something that black men commonly enjoyed. And so just as World War I changed the way that wars were fought, it also changed who fought them. Black soldiers were confined to segregated units led by white officers who often resented being associated with what the army would later come to call colored units. On the home front, there was a popular opinion among black men aged 21 to 30 that if they should serve in the military and fight overseas for the United States, it would effectively demolish racial barriers when they returned home, because their incredible sacrifice would make white America realize that they were human beings who were deserving of respect. Well, one of the first black infantry regiments to fight in World War I was the 369th Infantry, known as the Harlem Hellfighters. They would spend more time on the front lines than any other regiment in the entire army at 191 days, and they would lose more men than any other regiment in the entire army at 1,500. By offering up their bodies as tribute, these black men sought to resist white supremacy through non-violence. However ironic joining the army might have made that. They sought to secure their rights through laying bare the great suffering that they were willing to go through on behalf of the United States. But, to paraphrase Stokely Carmichael some 50 years later, Dr. King's major assumption was that if you are non-violent, if you suffer, your opponent will see your suffering and will be moved to change his heart. That's very good. He only made one fallacious assumption. In order for nonviolence to work, your opponent must have a conscience. The United States has none. The black men who served in the Harlem Hellfighters and regiments like it would be shipped overseas to fight in a war the horrors of which cannot merely be explained. We do not possess the frame of reference to be able to comprehend how truly monstrous the First World War was. It would be nothing compared to what they lived through when they got home. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 78, Red Summer. Hidden History is always available on www.hiddenhistory.show, and if you like what I do, then subscribe to the show on Spotify, review it on Apple Podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter, 
at HIDDNHistoryPod. So the term Red Summer refers to a period that began in the winter of 1918 and ended in the fall of 1919. The term itself was coined by James Weldon Johnson, who would later rise to lead the NAACP from 1920 to 1930. But what was the Red Summer? Well, it was an explosion of white supremacist violence in the wake of the demobilization of black soldiers in World War I. You see, the implementation of the draft had caused a severe labor shortage, and so in order to maintain production during the war, large employers began to heavily recruit from the South. Now, as a result of the laws in the South, it was very difficult for black Americans to get a job. And due to this new promise of employment in the North, it actually kickstarts the first Great Migration, which by its end in 1970 would see about 6 million black Americans leave the southern states. The corresponding growth of the northern labor pool created competition for jobs that, up until that point, were entirely dominated by white men. That increase in job scarcity, combined with the fact that inflation was seriously on the rise and that the government hadn't made any plans to reintegrate veterans into the job market, well, it made race relations among the worst they had ever been in the history of the United States. Those soldiers in the Harlem Hellfighters had gone to France thinking that they would return to find a freer country. They came back to absolute hell. The lynchings began almost immediately, and from January to September 1919, 43 African Americans were murdered. 16 were hanged, 19 were shot, and 8 were burned at the stake. But we are just getting started. 43 murders is a really astronomical amount. But that is small potatoes compared to the amount of people who were murdered by white vigilante mobs during the same period. In common parlance, historians will refer to these specific events throughout the Red Summer of 1919 as riots. But I don't think riot really accurately conveys the extent of what happened here. These were massacres. These were white supremacist paramilitary bands that hunted down and murdered black people like it was a sport. Now, instances of this white supremacist vigilantism was incredibly widespread. Going through it chronologically, it starts with the Jenkins County riot on April 13, 1919. Then the Charleston riot, the Longview race riot, the battle in Brewery Gulch in Bisbee, Arizona, the Washington race riot, the Norfolk race riot, the Chicago race riot, the Knoxville race riot, the Omaha race riot, the Elaine massacre, and the Wilmington race riot, rounding us out on November the 13th, 1919. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and say that none of these were things that you probably learned about in school. And if I had more time to produce each of these episodes, then I'd very much like to go into the story of each one of these and tell you exactly what happened. 
But unfortunately, that isn't the case. So I'm going to focus on two of these events that I think illustrate the brutality of the whole. I'm going to talk about the Omaha race riot of 1919 and the Elaine massacre. I would very much encourage you to rewind the episode a little bit and take down the names of the race riots that I won't be covering in this episode and do a little bit of research for yourself because these are stories that deserve to be told and deserve to be known. On Thursday, September 25th, 1919, Milton Hoffman and Agnes Loback were robbed at gunpoint on an empty Omaha street. Loback was then dragged into the woods and raped. The very next day, the Omaha Bee, the city's Republican newspaper, ran a headline saying that, quote, a black beast had raped Agnes Loback. Hundreds of armed vigilantes combed the area for hours looking for the perpetrator, that is, until a local woman told them about her neighbor, a, quote, suspicious black man who was suspicious only by virtue of the fact that he lived with a white woman, Virginia Jones. The men descended on the house and dragged the 41-year-old William Brown into the street at gunpoint. Loback identified Will Brown as the man who had attacked her, something that she would later recant during questioning. The police immediately arrested him and locked him in the Douglas County Courthouse. Sunday, September 28th, a crowd of between 5,000 and 15,000 white residents of Omaha descended on the courthouse, beating the police officers stationed to protect it and smashing the windows with bricks. Eventually, they broke through the basement doors and flooded into the building. They mercilessly beat any African-American in sight and gave the same to any white person trying to help them. They then broke into a neighboring gas station and used it to soak the courthouse and light it aflame. While the building burned, the mob broke into pawn shops throughout downtown, stealing over a thousand guns, which they then used to riddle the courthouse with bullets and clear rooms as they swept up through its interior. When the mayor of Omaha, a white man named Edward Parsons Smith appeared to plead for an end to the violence. The mob beat him with baseball bats, put a noose around his neck, and dragged him into the street. They hung him from a traffic light at the corner of 16th and Harney, and he only lived because a state agent from Nebraska rammed a car into the post to save him. William Brown was not so lucky. As the fire continued to consume the courthouse, surrounded by an armed and violent mob thousands strong, the prisoners were led up to the roof in order to escape the encroaching flames. And then they gave up Will Brown. The police threw notes down to the people below, saying that they would gladly surrender him to the mob so long as they saved the hundred white prisoners on the roof. The joyous mob stormed through the building, dragged William Brown into the street, and hanged him to death on a lamppost at the corner of 18th and Harney Streets. But it wasn't over yet. They had stolen all those guns, and so the mob decided that they were going to use them. 
They shot Brown's lifeless body hundreds of times, then cut the rope down and tied him to a bumper of a car. They dragged him through the street for four blocks before lighting his corpse on fire and dragging it through the city streets for the rest of the night. The riot would only end with the arrival of federal troops in the city on the morning of September 29th. Nobody, nobody at all, would ever be punished for it. One day later, on September 30th, 1919, in a tiny church in Hoop Spur, three miles outside of Elaine, Arkansas, a hundred black farmers met with Robert Hill, the founder of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America. You see, these men were sharecroppers and had been forced into poverty by the structure of the sharecropping system and its reinforcement through Jim Crow. All they wanted was a higher price for their cotton crop. But unionizing was so dangerous that the farmers in Hoopspur had to put armed guards outside the church to deter an attack or infiltration by those who worked for the white landowners. Sure enough, a firefight broke out. One man died and the other was wounded, and so the next day the sheriff sent a group of men to arrest everyone who was at the church. But as the men moved towards Hoop Spur, the mob grew and grew and grew. First a few dozen, then five hundred, then a thousand armed white vigilantes rolled through a lane. People came not only from the surrounding Arkansas counties, but also from across the river in Mississippi to take part in the violence. The mob began indiscriminately beating and murdering any black person they came across. The sheriff of Phillips County, whose deputy, Charles Pratt, had been wounded in the initial shootout at the church, asked the governor, Charles Hillman Burrow, to send in federal troops, not to, um... Not to stop the violence, but to escalate it. Burrow successfully petitioned the Department of War to send 500 troops to Elaine. His explanation to the governor was that they were fighting off a, quote, Negro uprising. And so when the troops arrived from their base outside of Little Rock, they too joined in the killing. Years later, Sharp Dunaway, a reporter who had borne witness to the atrocities in Elaine, said that the federal soldiers, quote, committed one murder after another with all the calm deliberation in the world, either too heartless to realize the enormity of their crimes or too drunk on moonshine to give a continental darn. More anecdotal evidence also supports the claim that the soldiers not only murdered with glee, but also actively tortured the black citizens surrounding Elaine. They arrested 285 black people and threw them in a jail built only large enough to accommodate 48. They kept them there without legal recourse until they could confirm that they were employed. T.K. Jones and H.F. Smitty, two white men, would later testify in 1925 that they actively tortured those who were imprisoned in the Elaine stockades, and they named a long list of others who did it with them.
The white community in Arkansas successfully covered up the Elaine massacre by again claiming that it had been an insurrection, and everyone bought it. The October 6, 1919 headline of the New York Times read, Planned Massacre of Whites Today. Negroes seized in Arkansas riots confessed to widespread plot among them. The story was quickly picked up by other papers around the country, and like that, the press had turned the entire apparatus of American white supremacy against a group of farmers who had been murdered for wanting a higher price for their cotton. 122 of the black residents of Elaine who had been imprisoned and tortured based solely on the color of their skin received indictments from a grand jury. For what, you might ask? Well, 49 were charged with various crimes, including night riding, which is, um, Actually, that's actually what the KKK does. As a matter of fact, the KKK rode in from the surrounding areas and helped murder people in a lane. So what about those other 73? They were charged with murder. That's right. The people who were being hunted down and slaughtered by white supremacists, they were being charged with murder. Who exactly did they murder? Nobody knows. I can tell you right now, it was nobody. As a matter of fact, those 122 people were the only ones who were prosecuted as a result of the Elaine massacre. Not even, not even the people that, that confessed to torturing victims in the Elaine prison. The trials themselves took place in 1920. In a courtroom filled with armed white men, all white juries, and appointed defense lawyers that didn't call any witnesses and didn't let any of their defendants testify. In many cases, each of these trials took about an hour. The juries took an average of ten minutes. Unsurprisingly, they came back guilty. Twelve of the defendants were sentenced to death by electric chair for a crime none of them committed. Ultimately, after a series of lengthy and complex legal battles funded by the NAACP, none of the Elaine Twelve would be executed. But that is a very low standard for justice. To simply not be executed for something you didn't do. It's worth noting that while the NAACP was fighting the sentences, the state of Arkansas ruled that all white juries and intentional prevention of testimony and a courthouse full of armed vigilantes somehow didn't illegitimize the court. Six of the Elaine Twelve would be freed as a result of a clerical error, and six by a last-minute furlough issued by Governor Thomas McRae who issued them in the last days of his administration before he was replaced by Thomas Jefferson Terrell, the 27th governor of Arkansas and an open member of the KKK. The official death toll in Elaine stood at five white men and 11 black men. It is estimated that the true death toll is five white men 
and 237 black people. These, these were just two stories. You heard how many things I listed earlier in this episode. I asked you to take a note of them. There are so many. It is sickening to conceive. There was no justice in either of these cases, and that is a common thread throughout the rest of them. How does that make you feel? What are we supposed to do with that? How can we reform that? I think we both know the answer. If you enjoyed this episode, then I'd really appreciate it if you subscribed to the show on Spotify, reviewed it on Apple Podcasts, or followed it on Twitter at H-I-D-D-N History Pod. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.